Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. You are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 Northampton, Massachusetts, and also streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org. Okay, so again, this is Evidence-Based Radio, and tonight we are going to start off with a couple of space stories. Actually, first off, I wanted to just do a little disclaimer. Um, I know that a lot of things are going on in the world right now, but I find that sticking to my science stories really gives me solace. So um, I definitely just wanted to put that out there that, you know, sometimes it's nice to just concentrate on something that's not really um, as upsetting as other things in the world. Um, But that doesn't mean that you don't still care about those things. But let's talk about space. (laughs) Okay, so you may have heard recently about the TRAPPIST-1 system. Uh, There was even a really adorable uh, Google Doodle um, for the system. But um, as with many of these discoveries, I tend to be a little more uh, skeptical and dubious And unfortunately, in this case, I think that I have proved to be right in my skepticism. And so let's talk a little bit about the system and what we may have recently found out about it. So, you know, it's been touted as a possible sister solar system, a mere 39 light years away. And of course, I always would like to point out that 39 light years away might as well be a million light years away, given our current technology. Um, And so, you know, unfortunately, there was a lot of hype around it when it was first discovered or first, you know, um, announced to people. But there has definitely been some uh, new evidence to suggest that on further inspection, TRAPPIST-1 is most likely another inhospitable set of planets that humans have no hope of ever reaching, and even if we could, would turn out to be uninhabitable hellscapes. (laughs) So a team led by astronomer um, Christian Vida from Konakoli Observatory in Hungary, and I'm sorry, I'm sure I butchered that name, um, They examined the raw photometric data from the system to analyze the luminosity patterns that would give them clues about the star's output. Now, the information was obtained using um, NASA's Kepler K2 um, during the uh, mission of um, Kepler, the space telescope. And so the Kepler Space Telescope has been tasked with finding potential planets in the near solar system um, or in the near universe, I should say. Um, And so they were looking at the data for an 80 day period and they found that there were 42 high energy flares that burst forth from the TRAPPIST-1 star. Now, five of the bursts were considered multi-peaked events, which means that there were several eruptions one after another. The largest of these flares was comparable to what astronomers have labeled the Carrington event. 
Now, this event was actually named after British astronomer Richard Carrington, who reported on the eruption and was the first scientist to realize that solar flares actually in, interacted with um, the magnetosphere and could cause geomagnetic perturbations on Earth, and that those actually could affect things on Earth. Now, a lot of things happened in America and all over the world. So there were huge solar, it was a huge solar flare event. And um, so this was in 1859. And America at that time was communicating via telegraph. And so the energy of the flare was so great that it traveled along the telegraph wires, causing sparks, uh, shocking some telegraph operators. And there are even stories about it having set fires in some of the telegraph offices. Um, probably not surprisingly, if you think about a telegraph, there's probably a lot of paper and other really flammable things around at that time. So probably small fires. I don't think there's anything was huge. Um, but the northern and southern aurora, they actually extended so far into the, um, or so far towards the equator, um, there was actually really pretty much only a narrow band uh, of places on the earth where you couldn't see the aurora. Um, the northern lights were said to have reached the Caribbean. Um, and so they also note that people in the northeast were able to read the newspaper by the light of the aurora. And miners in the Rocky Mountains were said to have been woken up by the lights, believing that it was morning. Now, of course, if such a thing were to happen today, Day, ooh, global communications would basically be virtually destroyed. Uh, <laughs> so let's hope that this was a one-time fluke. Um, because yeah, pretty much all of our communications are based on satellite uh, communication at this point. And so basically a giant solar flare the size of the Carrington event would pretty much fry everything in near-Earth orbit. Um and we would be in big trouble and it would take a long time to recover. So let's hope it doesn't happen anytime soon. <laughs> okay, getting back to TRAPPIST-1 though, the flares from the star are not only powerful, but so constant and the planets so much closer to the star that it seems highly unlikely that any life would be able to be sustained. The frequent strong flares of TRAPPIST-1 are probably disadvantageous for hosting life on the orbiting exoplanets, as the atmospheres of the exoplanets are constantly altered and cannot return to a steady state, the team concluded. Now, of course, the study does need to be reviewed, um, but I think that it's unlikely that we'll be considering TRAPPIST-1 as a potential source of life outside of Earth anytime soon, or any kind of destination spot. Um, despite the amazingly cool retro um, poster that NASA um, had created for it, um, I still do recommend that if you like retro futurism, um, NASA has been doing some amazing um, posters that they've been creating, uh, high resolution images that you can download that are basically travelogue posters. And even though I don't um, particularly agree with the idea of going to any of these places, um, I do love retrofuturistic art. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. Okay. 
Now, I, I do want to stress absolutely that I think that it's incredibly cool that we can now find planets orbiting stars. We've really only been very recently able to do that. And the fact that we can't go there or that it's almost certainly uninhabitable shouldn't detract from the sheer joy of finding this star system. It's really amazing that we can see planets orbiting a star so incredibly far away. Um, it's just amazing. And it's an incredible, uh, just amazing um, feat of human ingenuity that we have figured out how to do this. And so, yeah, the thing, of course, though, is that I like to keep my enthusiasm grounded in the real science. And as always, I like to stress the fact that I personally believe that we should be concentrating on saving our planet instead of daydreaming about moving to another. And I'm not saying you can't do both, but I just feel sometimes that people think, oh, well, we'll just go somewhere else. That's not going to happen. And no, Mars is not the uh, answer either. <laughs> so anyways, let us move on. Um, so... There is some more space news, which is that a marathon three-day citizen science blitz has given researchers not has given researchers not only one but four possible candidates for Planet Nine in our own solar system, and it's also helped classify over four million other objects. Now, of course, again, I say Planet Nine because. Pluto is still not a planet. I am going to tell you a story right now that I wasn't sure if I was going to tell you, but full disclosure, I totally fell for an April Fool's Day um, article saying that Pluto had been made a planet again due to public outcry. And I shouldn't have believed it because, of course, that's not how science works. But I was in the right frame of mind that I was just so upset and outraged that, you know, this would happen. And then the next day I realized. <laughs> so fake news gets the best of us, uh, especially when it's in April Fool's type thing where it's by someone who by a publication that's normally pretty straight laced. Um, so you always have to be careful and you always have to be catch, uh, checking your sources and checking your biases. <laughs> OK, so anyways, getting back to the search for the real Planet Nine. The project was hosted by citizen science website Zooniverse, which has a whole host of other um, projects, and this one is actually still ongoing. Um, and it was supported by the Siding Spring Observatory at Australian National University, and it used data from the observatory's SkyMapper telescope. And so led by researcher Brad Tucker, the project was, as I noted, a rousing success. Even if none of the four objects end up being Planet Nine, doesn't matter. Um, so um, in case you don't know what I'm talking about here, there's some pretty strong evidence um, for a planet on an irregular orbit far out from the other planets, but still orbiting the sun. So they've been looking at Oort cloud um, objects, and they've realized that it makes more sense that their um, orbits make more sense if there's another planet out there that we just don't realize because it's on a weird um, off-kilter elliptical orbit. 
and a very large orbit as well. And so they note that with the help of tens of thousands of dedicated volunteers sifting through hundreds of thousands of images taken by SkyMapper, we have achieved four years of scientific analysis in under three days. One of those volunteers, Tony Roberts, has made 12,000 classifications. And again, there's work yet to be done. Now, the researchers have asked for human help rather than using computers, not only because there's more that they have limited processing power, but it's actually because the human eye is much more able to view movement against a background in a way that is actually extremely hard to teach computers to do. And so that's one of those things. There are still a lot of things that humans can do effortlessly that researchers have yet to figure out how to program computers to simulate. So not everyone is going to lose their um, job to the coming robot apocalypse. <laughs> um, okay, let's switch gears now and talk about another favorite subject on this show, which is the ocean and its inhabitants. Now, I still believe that we should be funding giant research missions in the ocean as much as in space. That's kind of my base argument is that I don't think we're spending enough time really diving into the ocean um, than uh, we are with all of our fun space projects. And yes, space is amazing and awesome, and I'm not poo-pooing it in any way, but I think that we should also be looking the oceans more closely because there's so many crazy alien things in our ocean that we don't have to go anywhere to find other than, you know, a few hundred meters, thousand meters underneath the ocean. So... There is actually great work being done, so I don't want to um, forget to talk about that. So I've mentioned before that NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association, uh, they have a ship called the Okinos Explorer, and that is currently mapping in America's, American Samoa and the Cook Islands. And there is also the exploration vessel Nautilus, uh, which is under the stewardship of Dr. Robert Ballard, uh, who is the famed ocean explorer and is best known for discovering the resting place of the Titanic. And so the Nautilus actually communicates with a command station at the Inner Space Center at the University of Rhode Island Graduate School of Oceanography. Now, both can be found on YouTube, and they have excellent videos showing amazing creatures, uh, including several, several videos of one of my personal favorite, or actually my personal favorite, hands down, creature from the ocean, which is the octopus. Um, but just recently, actually, there was a great video of a, um, a really complete and long siphonophore. Now, siphonophores are amazingly weird creatures. You know, that's the thing. It's like we talk about alien creatures. A siphonophore is extremely alien. Um, it is basically a collective uh, creature, which means that it's not a creature. It is a conglomeration of thousands and thousands of smaller creatures. 
And they actually differentiate themselves in order to create the larger creature. And so it's it's a very weird thing to get your head around. It's very hard to understand, but it's a giant colonial um, creature that looks like, it almost looks like a, um, like a ribbon that has um, sort of a 3D ribbon. Um, it's very hard to describe. You just have to go and watch it. I will, uh, when I get out of here, I will go and find the video for it and put the link on the Facebook because it's very cool and very beautiful and very weird. <laughs> okay, so let us actually talk about the stories that I have, which are about octopi um, and other cephalopods. One of them is really cool and interesting. One's a little bit sad, but it's still pretty cool. Um, so the newest and weirdest discovery about octopuses and other cephalopods is just crazy. Uh, we already know that they're total masters of disguise. They're highly intelligent. They can be amazing mimics, escape artists. Uh, they're occasionally toxic and otherwise they're just the best that nature has to offer in marine adaptations. But it turns out that nature has given them an even weirder and uh, potentially greater tool of adaptation. And so a new study by Joshua Rosenthal of the Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole and Eli Eisenberg and Noah Liskovich, um, Liskovich Brower, excuse me, at Tel Aviv University. And so they published their research in the journal Cell, and it shows that some species of squid, octopuses, and cuttlefish actually actively edit their RNA in order to, they suspect, adapt to local changes. Now, I do want to say one thing here because I just read that and I thought about how it sounds. Clearly, we don't think that this is a intelligently guided process. So it's not like they're sitting there thinking about how they want to change their DNA um, or their RNA, excuse me. This is a, you know, a semi-autonomous process that is... Um, done through chemical signaling and things like that. Um, <laughs> I don't think that they're, they're actually adapting their RNA through a conscious process. But um, it is still incredibly weird because actually scientists once thought that nature had tried out RNA uh, editing and decided that basically it was too much of a pain. Um, and so it is complicated and messy. And so nature threw it out, except apparently it forgot to tell the cephalopods. Um, and so they found that in this group of cephalopods, which are actually called coleoids, there is a huge amount of RNA editing. In squid, more than 60% of RNA transcripts in a squid's brain have been edited. For comparison, in a human or a fruit fly, only a fraction of a percent, one percent, like not even one percent, a fraction of that has actually been edited. And so it's really interesting. And in fact, it's really unique it seems, to these coleoids, because the researchers also looked at the more primitive cephalopod, the nautilus, um, and a gastropod, slug. <laughs> 
And so um, Rosenthal notes that this shows that high levels of RNA editing is not generally a molluscan thing. It's an invention of the coleoid cephalopods. And again, in mammals, very few RNA editing sites are conserved, um, and they are not thought to be under natural selection. And so he goes on to say, there is something fundamentally different going on in these cephalopods where many of the editing events are highly conserved and show clear signs of selection. Now, the researchers found that the areas with the most RNA editing are contained in the nervous system, and so they suspect it might have something to do with all any number of things. It could be something as simple as um, temperature control, adapting to temperature changes, or something as complex as storing experience, maybe a form of memory. Um, now, again, as noted above, it's not necessarily all good news um, for the coleoid family. The RNA editing is carried out mostly by ADAR enzymes, which require large structures flanking each editing site. And so they can be up to hundreds of nucleotides long. And as noted, these reason regions are highly conserved and have a very low mutation rate. The conclusion here is that in order to maintain the flexibility to edit RNA, the coleoids have given up, have had to give up the ability to evolve in the surrounding regions a lot, Rosenthal says. Mutation is usually thought of as the currency of natural selection, and these animals are suppressing that to maintain recoding flexibility at the RNA level. So again, they're doing things completely differently than every other species does. Um, so once again, proving that cephalopod, uh, especially coleoid cephalopods, are not only amazing and uh, incredible, but also that they are um, completely and utterly alien just crazy alien, just insanely alien. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, very cool. All right, now let's talk about the not so great thing for uh, octopi, but still a really interesting study nonetheless. So even as smart as they are, Octopuses and other coleoids are not necessarily top predators. So a new study of bottlenose dolphins shows that they prepare octopuses uh, for eating by throwing them up into the air and shaking them around um, and beating them basically against the uh, surface of the water. And so researchers believe they are using the activity to help break down and tenderize the prey before eating it. And in fact, um, this is probably a really good idea because large octopuses can be hard to swallow even after death. The behavior was observed off the coast of Australia and was published in the, marine, in the journal Marine Mammal Science by Kate Sprogis, a marine mammal ecologist at Murdoch University, and David Hawking, a marine zoologist at Monash University, both in Australia. And so, again, the behavior has very real usefulness for the dolphins. 
In 2015, an otherwise healthy adult male dolphin that had been named Gilligan by the research team was found to have suffocated while trying to eat an octopus. And that is not the only time that this has happened. Because one of the big things is that they have these, you know, um, suckers that not only are active when the animal is alive, but they stay active pretty much even when the animal is dead. So it really helps to try and break that up before you try and swallow it. And in fact, um, I've definitely seen videos of humans having trouble swallowing octopuses in Asia. Um, there, um, don't hold me to this, but I believe that Koreans do try and eat them um, still alive, sometimes baby, baby ones. But still, even that is very hard to do. Um, and people do have huge issues with it. And um, so the researchers observed 45 octopus handling events between March 2007 and August 2013. And so in an article for the website, The Conversation, the authors noted that during these events, dolphins were observed shaking and tossing octopus around at the water's surface. In some instances, the prey was gripped in the teeth before being slapped down onto the water. This likely helped both to kill the octopus and to tear it into smaller, more digestible pieces. In other instances, the octopus was tossed across the surface of the water before being recaptured and tossed again. And one of the other things is that these octopus meals must be actually pretty worth it um, because the dolphins have developed this process which involves arching their entire body in, in order to toss the potential meal into the air. And so it turns out that dolphins, um, in case you don't know, have very short necks and most of their vertebrae are really, really compressed. And so it means they have very little range of motion. And so what they think is that because the researchers found that they were being eaten more in the winter and spring, which is when octopuses are breeding, um, they suspect that that might be why the dolphins are eating them that much because they're more abundant, but also because once they have bred, the octopuses actually start to die themselves. They slowly weaken and die in a process referred to as semilparity. And so, again, this might make them easier catch for the hungry bottlenose dolphins. And of course, this isn't all that dolphins have been known to do. They're obviously incredibly smart as well. They've been observed popping out the cuddle bone of cuttlefish before eating them. They've been found to use marine sponges as a tool to protect their snout while probing the seafloor, which is a story that I talked about last year, I believe. And obviously they have a lot of advanced fishing techniques. So this is definitely a fight between two very smart animals. <laughs> okay. We're going to take a break for some PSAs and we're going to talk about <coughs> another really smart animal. So hang on for a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. 
My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Robots the size of blood cells, Earth-like planets outside the solar system, science fiction. No, science faction. Join us, Seth Chostak and Molly Bentley and Valley Free Radio, Monday mornings at 9 for Big Picture Science. Big Picture Science steps back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology from where they've been to where they're headed. So think Big Picture Science. You'll find it here Monday mornings at 9 on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, WXOJ. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. And we are back. And so we are going to continue to talk about... Um, clever animals but i did want to take a minute to mention that nerd night is actually coming back coming up on this coming monday and so they are going to as always have two speakers and so this time it's going to be about the ranked choice voting uh talk There will be a talk about ranked choice voting, excuse me, and greenwashing, which I think will be really interesting to hear about. 
And apparently there is going to be some sort of beer involved in the ranked choice voting. Um, and so apparently they uh, you should definitely go if you like beer, if you like the idea of ranked choice voting, which I certainly do. Um, if you're interested in a talk about greenwashing, which is something that I am particularly annoyed about pretty much all the time, <laughs> then uh, definitely Nerd Night is for you. Um, and so it is $5 um, and it is at the World War II Club. And so that is once again, Monday from 7 to around 9 p.m. Okay, so let us go back to talking about clever animals. So you may or may not have heard about this, um, but there recently was the discovery that there was a badger <laughs> who had single-handedly buried a cow. <laughs> now, the researchers who discovered the badger's behavior weren't even studying badgers. <laughs> they were actually studying scavenging birds. And so it turns out that uh, this badger kind of got into the middle of their research. And so the University of Utah doctoral candidate in biology, Evan Buchley, um, actually discovered the footage and has reported his findings um, and that of his colleagues in the journal Western North American Naturalist. Not to anthropomorphize too much, but he looks like a really, really happy badger, rolling in the dirt and living the high life, he noted. <laughs> Buchley had dragged seven calf carcasses out to the grassy mountains west of Salt Lake City in order to study the behavior of vultures and other carrion birds. The cows were staked down and camera traps were set up to record any activity around the carcasses. When Buchley and colleagues returned a week later, only six cows were visible. Initially, they were disappointed because um, he believed that a coyote or a mountain lion must have dragged it off. And frankly, you know, calf carcasses are heavy and hard to transport up to this, uh, you know, mountain area. And so it was kind of annoying. Uh, but then he noticed a disturbance in the area where the cow had been placed. Right on the spot, I downloaded the photos, he says. What he discovered was a five-day-long time-lapse of a badger completely burying the calf in order to basically keep it for itself. And so badgers have been known to bury small prey like rabbits, um, but this cow weighed around 50 pounds, which is compared to the 15 to 20 pounds of the badger itself. However, it turns out that they actually also caught another badger attempting to do the same thing, though the second badger eventually gave up. He was not as amazing as this first badger. <laughs> and so basically, he just was gnawing on this cow for five days straight. And so this actually leads the researchers to suspect that this behavior might actually be something that they do on a regular basis or somewhat regular basis and just has not been observed before in badgers. And of course, part of the problem is that they are rather elusive animals. They're nocturnal and they spend the majority of their time underground. 
And they note that if this is a behavior that is normal for the animals, it could potentially have a large impact on the region's ecosystem, either for the good or the bad or both. So if badgers are hogging large animal carcasses, then they're depriving other species, such as the ravens, bobcats, foxes, coyotes, turkey vultures, and golden eagles that were all caught on camera sampling the other carcasses. On the other hand, the researchers note, burying the animals could potentially help to prevent the spread of disease or to keep large predator animals away from the rest of the herd if they were doing this in the wild where basically um, semi-autonomous herds of cattle are being um, pastured. But um, all I have to say is that regardless of the greater implications, there's a video <laughs> and you can watch this clever and happy badger doing his work. Um, so the um, I've already set up the link and so it should be available at seven if you want to go to the evidence-based radio uh, Facebook page and click on it and watch this really ridiculous badger. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Okay. So we're going to stick with creatures for a little bit. Um, and the next story is about rats. And I know people, some people don't like rats, but these are adorable rats. They're like kitten sized, adorable. Oh, so cute. <laughs> Yes, yes, I know that I might not convince some of you to give up your discomfort about rats, but I do want to talk about this because it's interesting and neat. And, you know, rats have a lot of uses beyond the lab. Um, you know, they're actually really good pets. I've known lots of people who have had rats as pets. Fortunately, the rats that you can get as pets, they don't tend to live that long. So that's unfortunate. Um, you get really attached to it, but then... But these actually um, are longer-lived rats, and they're, did I mention they're adorable? Okay, I might not be able to convince you, but let's go on anyways. So a Belgian-based nonprofit called Apopo trains African giant pouched rats to sniff out both landmines and also tuberculosis. And so a couple of weeks back was World Tuberculosis Day, and we've talked about some other breakthroughs with tuberculosis, so I thought it would be good to talk about this. Um, so yeah, it's the work with TB that I definitely want to highlight tonight. So the rats are being deployed, um, especially in Mozambique, which has about 60,000 had about 60,000 TB cases in 2014, and where one in 10 adults is HIV positive. And of course, that lowers their ability to fight off opportunistic infections, which TB absolutely can be in a heartbeat. So according to Newsweek, the adorable medical helpers have raised the detection rate on average by about 50%, and in some labs, as much as 80%. And so James Percy of Apopo um, notes that the rats are trained in the same way pretty much that any other animals like this are trained. Once you have isolated a type of scent with tuberculosis, it's the smell the metabolism of the bacteria give off. You can train the scent. You can train the scents detecting animals to identify them through a standard method of a click. You let them know when they're near the scent by giving them a click and they get some food. The sample that isn't the target sense means they don't get a click or food. 
So you introduce lots of smells, reduce the strength of the target smell, and over nine months, they are trained to instantly detect the target scent. Hooray! <laughs> and of course, the rats are also cheaper and easier to use in developing countries that don't have easy access to well-stocked labs or even electricity all the time. Training a rat costs between $6,700 and $8,000, um, and the rats live, again, for around eight years. This is in contrast to a diagnostic device that may cost up to $17,000 per each device. And so they're also actually faster, even. So rats can do in 20 minutes what would take two days for lab technicians using diagnostic equipment. And of course, this means quicker treatment for those affected. And so Apopo is hoping to expand the project within Tanzania, as well as Mozambique, and other countries hit hard by TB. So the World Health Organization notes that TB rates have dropped 45% between 1990 and 2013. However, even with that drop, it's still the second biggest single infectious agent killer after HIV AIDS. Okay, so I've talked about rats, <laughs> and now I'm unfortunately going to go a step further and once again talk about spiders. Um, and there's also a bit of medical kind of ickiness involved in this. So if you're squeamish, I apologize. You may want to um, not listen to the next five minutes or so. Um, but I thought this is a really important uh, story for some of the larger lessons that it um, can tell us. And so, okay. We're, we're, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about um, this spider story. So I want to start out with a little bit of a philosophical statement on this. One of the essential problems about humans is that we have a deep desire to have a defined cause when something happens. We do not like the idea of not knowing. It is extremely discomforting to humans, and we will go to pretty much any length not to have to deal with that. It's why we make up so many stories about gods, demons, ghosts, and other supernatural explanations for natural occurrences. It's why we scapegoat people. It's why... A million things. <laughs> it's one of our most fundamental, I would say, human flaws. Um, of course, you know, it has good sides too. Lots of great stories come out of that idea, but it has a lot of, it makes for a lot of trouble. And so in this case, this is a little bit more prosaic from, uh, you know, gods and demons, but uh, it's still very um it is a good example of how this plays out in everyday life. And so basically a kind of spider is being blamed for a man's double amputation. So the family of Terry Pereja, a Filipino tourist, says he was bitten by a white-tailed spider while visiting the Victoria region late February. Um, and this is Victoria, um, Australia, obviously. Um, he then had to undergo emergency surgery uh, twice to have 
first his right and then his left leg amputated due to an uncontrollable infection of flesh-eating bacteria or um, necrotizing fasciitis, um, supposedly induced by the spider bite. However, there's one problem. The spider, they say, bit the man, has not been found to cause the ulcerations and necrotic lesions that were indicated. A study in August 2003 looked at 130 cases of confirmed white tail spider bites between February 1999 and April 2002 and found that none caused necrotic lesions. This provides good evidence that necrotic ulcers are unlikely to be a result of white tail spider bites, and previously reported cases are more likely a result of misattribution, concluded the authors Jeff. Jeffrey Isbister and Michael Gray. In fact, researchers point out to a study that indicates that the venom has, quote, little effect on human cell cultures. And so Jeffrey Isbister, um, a co-author again of that original study, notes that it's all about people wanting to be able to label what they have. Much better that a spider did it rather than we are not sure. It's really quite disturbing to see that this stuff has been reborn. For a long time, even at the height of the issue, we said, this is not the spider that's doing the damage. And in fact, the mouth of the spider is actually really small, hardly able to even penetrate the skin of humans. And in fact, Queensland Museum arachnologist Robert Raven told The Guardian, The thing we've said over and over again is that spiders don't have necrotic venom. You imagine what it is. A spider bites you and it's going to follow you until you die? No, it needs to bring the animal down quickly. So sometimes we just don't know why something has happened, but jumping to conclusions is not the way to solve our problems. We need to investigate what is really happening. For instance, I know that we all associate Australia with deadly animals. It's a great joke that everybody sort of tells, um, except probably Australians. Sorry, Australians. <laughs> but not all of them are actually trying to kill you. <laughs> um, and so it's really important to not uh, get caught up in that. And of course, part of the problem I do acknowledge is that there are some spider bites that are associated with infections that can lead to um, necrosis. And so for instance, the brown recluse, um, I believe is, and I'm pulling this from memory, so I'm not 100% positive, but I believe that they have been associated with that. So if you know that one spider has, then perhaps this other spider is, but it's just not. <laughs> um, and it's not good to conflate these things. Okay, let's talk about something completely different and much cooler um, for most people. And it does not have to do with any kind of creature. So we are going to talk about the newly minted Smithsonian Beer Scholar. <laughs> so Teresa McCullough will have the very much enviable job of studying and writing about the history of American brewing. The position will be supported in part by funding from the Brewers Association, the nonprofit trade group representing brewers. However, it is undeniable that beer production has played a large part in American culture. 
And McCullough is a Harvard scholar. Um, she is set to get her PhD from Harvard in American Studies, and she has previously been at Harvard as a culinary expert. And so she will be chair of the Brewing History Initiative at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. She'll explore both the found historical foundations of beer in America, as well as the recent history where beer has blossomed from what was basically a bottleneck in the 1980s to the huge boom of craft beers we see today. Smithsonian has already used food as a very critical and successful entry point into talking with the public about much bigger questions relating to American history, says McCullough. We really feel quite strongly that beer is a very effective lens into much bigger questions about American history. If you look at the history of beer, you can understand stories related to immigration and industrialization and urbanization. You can look at advertising and the history of consumer culture and changing consumer taste. Brewing is integrated into all facets of American history. And of course, you will be traveling across the country to collect both artifacts and stories from breweries, both big and small. And one of the things that she really wants to do is dispel certain myths about the beer industry. One common stereotypic about, stereotype about American beer is its identity as largely, if not exclusively, masculine, she notes. But the history shows us that the very first brewers were women and enslaved people who brewed beer in the home. She also notes that when Americans think of beer today, perhaps we think of big Midwestern cities like Milwaukee or St. Louis or Cincinnati. But if we look back at the history of beer, especially in the 19th century or early 20th century, we'll see that beer is really crucial to the urban fabric of many places like New York City, New Orleans, and D.C. She says that she hopes that her research that my research will help uncover these people and places that might not be part of our current conversation. So that sounds very cool to me. All right, we've got one more story. <laughs> we are going to, I, I know I said we were going to go to something nicer, but we're, go, we're circling back again. Uh, we are going to wash down that story about beer and uh, America with a chaser of cannibalism. <laughs> So a new study published in Scientific Reports suggests that humans aren't very good food sources and therefore cannibalism in humans most likely had social or ritual reasons rather than um, as a need for nutrition. So James Cole, an expert in human evolution from the University of Brighton, showed that an adult male weighing around 145 pounds contains around 144,000 calories with skeletal muscle just over 32,000 calories, kidneys at around 376 calories, and the kidney at 128 calories. Now, 32,000 calories might not sound too shabby until you realize that a mammoth offered 3,600,000 calories, a horse 200,100 2, 200, calories, that's a very hard number to say, and a red deer 163,680 calories. What this suggests is that we aren't 
terribly nutritious, said Cole. We are a fairly small animal, really, and we don't have much flesh and meat or fat to us, and we certainly wouldn't necessarily have done in the past either. And of course, he notes that we do hunt and eat smaller animals, but those smaller animals are much less um, able to fight back than a uh, human would be able to if they were alive. Now, of course, it's hard to tell with current methods just why a human was eaten, but researchers suggest that factors are that there are factors more likely associated with a social behavior, and only occasionally is it out of necessity. It may be that there were certain funerary rites associated with cannibalism, or perhaps good old-fashioned pragmatism um, that included not wasting calories, um, but not uh, necessarily needing them either. So um, Paul Pettit, a professor of Paleolithic archaeology at the University of Durham, um, who wasn't involved in the study, notes that other primates, such as chips and bonobos, are known to occasionally practice cannibalism as well. Such behaviors clearly form something like a behavioral ritual, an unconscious act that stemmed from common activities central to group behavior like eating meat, he said. Somewhere along the line of human evolution, this behavior turned from behavioral rituals to ritualized behavior. And as Cole shows very well, evidence does clearly reveal that eating human meat was not exclusively about survival. Now, of course, more research, more research is always necessary um, before we can make any real conclusions. Um, you know, this is talking about Paleolithic sites. And, you know, even though we have a lot of Paleolithic sites, the they're not all that um, amazingly uh, diverse. And there isn't an amazing amount of um, archaeological or anthropological anthropological uh, material left. And so it may be that some yet undiscovered site will uh, add clarity to the picture, but it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what was in people's minds, you know, <laughs> a couple of hundred thousand years ago. Um, but for now, my advice is, you know, just keep in mind that eating another person isn't a great dietary choice. <laughs> Um, definitely stay away from the brain as well. Um, nobody wants to end up with Kuru, um, which is the disease that you get from, um, ingesting prions that are in the brain. And, um, yeah, nobody wants that. <laughs> uh, and so basically only resort to cannibalism in the case of being, left adrift at sea by a giant angry whale, for instance, or on the top of a mountain by a plane crash, uh, or other really um, important kind of live or die uh, situations. Don't uh, start thinking about your neighbor um, as dinner, because probably not a good idea. All right. And on that fun note, um, that is all for evidence-based radio tonight. Please t stay tuned for civil politics. <laughs> 